I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. My guest today is Joe Considine, and Joe Considine is a Marchman Act attorney. In the state of Florida, we have something that is known as the Marchman Act, and it's a piece of legislation that allows family members and concerned persons to petition a court to have an individual evaluated for a substance use disorder if that person is deemed to be a potential harm to themselves due to their substance use. The evaluation should determine the level of care that's the most appropriate to treat the person's substance use disorder if they in fact have one. And based on the recommendations that the evaluator gives to the Marchman Act court, the individual in question could be court ordered into residential treatment or an outpatient program for several months if that's what is deemed necessary by the court, and there'll be periodic reviews, of course, to determine the level of progress that the person is making. So it's a pretty serious matter because involuntary commitments are taken very seriously, obviously. It's an affront to your personal freedom uh, for your own protection, and that always gets to be uh, a sticky issue with people. On the other side of it, when you think about someone with a substance use disorder in 2022, that is unwilling to accept help in a voluntary way, that's a really scary thing, probably more so than at any other point of our history, because this is the opioid epidemic and the age of fentanyl, which means any episode of substance use could really be your last. The potential for overdose and fatalities is so high. So when you think about the work that people like Joe are doing, it's so critical because if you've gotten to a place where you're going to hire an attorney to bring forward a petition for a Marchman Act, obviously as a family member, you're probably in a pretty desperate and scary place with your loved one's substance use disorder. If you're going to hire someone to do this, you want to make sure it's the right person and that they're going to get the job done. And I really see Joe as that kind of guy. I mean, he's sort of He has like a litigator's mentality and uh, he's an advocate. So that comes with a pretty strong personality and a lot of opinions. And so he was like a really, you know, kind of an interesting guy to talk to. He's known to be very effective at his his work. So when Joe reached out to me a couple months ago and asked if he can come on, I was uh, I was happy to hear from him. I didn't really know him personally, but I knew him by reputation and uh, he's a respected guy, and I see him on social media and that kind of thing. And uh, I found the conversation to be interesting, and he was uh, exactly what I hoped he would be. 
and we talked a lot and he gave a lot of information about the Marchman Act and how it works and what it's like to do that for a living. And also, you know, his own thoughts about uh, substance use disorders and involuntary treatment in general. I think his insights on the topic are pretty unique, and I, I thought it was a pretty good conversation. So with that said, I hope you enjoy it. champion joe considine joe welcome to the good council podcast thank you sir i appreciate being asked to um to appear on your great podcast and you're doing good work man you're doing good work eric well thank you very much it's uh it's nice to see you you know interesting thing i was thinking about different things to talk about obviously we're going to cover the marchman act because you are first and foremost a marchman act attorney uh said concisely, but obviously that means a lot more than just that, right? And we'll talk about some of the nuances of that. I saw that you recently posted on LinkedIn, you were commenting about the miniseries, the Hulu miniseries, Dope Sick. And I like what you had said about it. I know they won a bunch of awards. I like what you had said about it. And I'll always take like any opportunity to talk about that show because I think it was so well done and poignant the way they captured all of these different elements of what was going on at like the origin of the opioid crisis as we know it today and how Purdue Pharma uh, through their actions kind of like proliferated this whole thing with Oxycontin and I just think they did a remarkable and very realistic job of portraying all these different elements from the pharmaceutical company itself to the boardroom to what the sales reps were doing to what was going on in doctor's offices to what was going on in the world of blue-collar workers with chronic pain to what was going on like on the streets of uh, Philadelphia they, they kind of like captured all of and and what was going on um you know in the government Oh, it was really well done. And so, first of all, <clears throat> thank you for asking me to be here. And I just want to give a shout out to, um, her name is Beth Macy. She wrote the book, Dope Sick. And, and I think she probably also wrote the screenplay. She adapted it from the book to the, to the, to the screenplay. Um, and, and they've been nominated for 14 Emmys, which is, you know, congratulations to them. Um, and it's, you know, it's a must see. It really is. I hope that, you know, there's so many different streaming services and and people are limited by their ability to pay the, you know, the tab on the subscriptions on all these. And it is on Hulu. Um, you know, I, I bought Hulu just so that I could watch Dope Sick. And I couldn't wait for each week for the new episode to come out. Um, it was spellbinding. It's kind of almost a little bit like... Um, these January 6th hearings for me are so compelling. Um, but, you know, that's a different subject. 
dope sick was just, and you, you laid it out nicely. I mean, they talked about, you know, what go, went on in the boardroom, you know, about how that company, um, I think they were the makers of Valium, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, Mother's Little Helper, you know, as, as Mick Jagger sung, um, you know, and, you know, we've lost 900,000 American to overdose, to opioid overdose since 1999. And that just happens to coincide with when OxyContin, you know, um, was gaining track, was gaining traction. And then they show in that series, what happened to West Virginia? What happened to, you know, Tennessee? What happened to, you know, Maine? What happened to all the Appalachia areas where these people became hooked on, um, on these drugs um, and it was so sad. Michael Keaton, the great actor, the, the best Batman ever, I think, um, was, he played the doctor. Um, well-meaning, you know, lost his wife in the show. Um, just loved these people. Had just, had moved there maybe. And I don't want to give away too much of, this, of the story, but had moved into this town. I don't know, some, wasn't from there, but had moved there in the last 10 years or so. Um, in practice, he was like, you know, a Dr. Marcus Welby from the old TV show, loved his patients. And he was sold on the, you know, the efficacy of this Oxycontin by these sale, this hotshot salesman played by, oh, I can't remember his name, Will something, good actor. Um, and he himself then became addicted and lost his license and, and you know his his um, patients became addicted, and, and this one young woman died on it. But Michael Keaton had unique personal interest in this because his nephew had overdosed and died from OxyContin. So it's it's so touching and it's so well done. Um, I'm going back and, and to rewatch it. I think it's is it nine episodes? Does that sound right? Yeah, something like that. Okay, so yeah, kudos to them. Yeah. So, who was your favorite character on the on the show? I, you know, do you have a favorite? It's either the young woman who worked in the mines, in the coal mines, and who injured her back, and had to, you know, struggled with coming out to her to her parents. Very courageous, or it's Michael Keaton, the the doctor, you know, because he he crossed so many different lines in terms of the hats that he was wearing, from trusted healthcare provider to addict you know and then to struggle to find to find the dope to make himself okay for me it was all about michael stahlberg's portrayal of richard sackler oh my god was he good so good his callous indifference to all these people dying his outright dismissal of these increases in overdose deaths and his ability to not only rationalize the things that were going on that everyone saw but to capitalize on them there was that one point oxycontin is really potent what everyone thought was non-addictive painkiller so they were giving it out in high doses and people were getting relief from chronic pain after a while they were all getting addicted so what was happening the person who was stabilized on a dose of, I don't know, whatever, 20 milligrams a day, is now waking up in the middle of the night in severe pain, right? And to us, you look at that, and yeah, they're going into withdrawal. and The medication is not as effective as it 
was because this person has now built a tolerance for it. So this lower dose isn't going to work. They completely mitigated that and invented a new word. They called it breakthrough pain. Oh, yes. It's not withdrawal. It's breakthrough pain. And they have this breakthrough pain. That's what it is. And what we need to do is we need FDA approval on these higher dose Oxycontin tablets. So this was the birth of like the Oxy 80, you know, the 80 Mm. milligram Oxy. It's like the most coveted street drug of all time. Their marketing and their ability to spread propaganda was so effective that they got doctors to buy into it. Medical professionals who really should have known better. You kind of hope they would. That's not addiction. It's breakthrough pain. And because of that, we now have this high dose oxy 80 we can give you that will help you with the breakthrough pain. And you're just like, wow, I can't believe it. When you see it unfold and how these things are talked about in the boardroom and spun, they got an entire country to buy into it. That was like the disturbing aspect. And Michael Stahlbarg, he just killed it like a Marvel villain. He was so good. He was dark and disturbing. His facial expressions now, I recall, just oh, hated him, hated him. That's what he could compel it because you hated him so bad. <laughs> then when are they taking him down? When know? do they take him down? You know, and then I I learned something um, a few years ago from a doctor who passed away, Adam Bianchini, about opioid about hyperalgesia opioid-induced hyperalgesia um are you i'm not familiar with the term so it's um this is my you know law school understanding non-scientific is that you know we like that our organism taking the opioids likes it so much that the brain starts looking for pain oh yeah you know what i never knew there was a word for it but that I think is that hypersensitivity, like every headache or every flu symptom is like catastrophic. So everything is pain. Yeah, it's so disturbing. Um, and because of, I'm going to give a shout out to my my friend and colleague, Dr. Judy Grizel, who you should talk about someday getting her on this. She's a neuroscientist who she herself is 30, 35 years clean and sober. She wrote a New York Times bestselling book called um, Never Enough the neurobiology and experience of addiction. And she talks a lot about the the opponent process theory about why addicts use because they have to, they have to. And she explains it from a neuroscience perspective um, about how the brain gets hijacked and, and that they've got to use because the, the opposing process is, is, is at work, which I, which I talked to and explained to my parents. And by the way, I'll also be speaking to the Florida association of magistrates and hearing officers uh, for the second time. The first time was in October of last year. And the, the topic is how substance use disorder rewires the brain and how treatment also rewires the brain. This, this, so we talked a lot about opiates back in October to them in August, August 28th, I'll be talking to them about how cannabis is not your parent or your grandparents' cannabis anymore. Because I see a lot of um, cannabis-induced psychosis uh, in my practice, as I know you and other clinicians and treatment centers are also seeing a rise in, psych- in psychosis due to the high levels of THC. Go ahead. Yeah, so to that, that point, it's not common knowledge. So it's not really part 
of the wisdom that gets passed on to young people. But if you have latent psychiatric, right, if you have maybe the tendencies towards psychosis, if you're genetically loaded for that as an adolescent, I think any powerful or potent psychedelic, which, you know, marijuana is, could be enough to kind of push you into the other side of that. Whereas you might have been someone who struggled at one level. Now you're some totally other experience and that could be permanent. And treatment centers and psychiatric hospitals are filled with people like that. And the parents, you know, the question is always sort of like the same of, well, once we get them clean and sober, is this psychotic sort of presentation, is this going to go away? Don't know. It's really a crapshoot. And the answer to that might be no. Once you've cracked that threshold, you can medicate the symptoms and stabilize this person, but you might be dealing with a bit of a different brain at that point. That's the level that we're on. Because when you're talking about the marijuana of the 1980s, like what I had in high school versus what's available to people today, there's a big difference between a substance with 10, 15% THC versus hydroponically grown under the perfect conditions to get you 75%, 80% purity. It's just like, I think a different thing. It absolutely is. And so uh, uh, I think one of your guests, you've had John Poles on. So John and I did a presentation to the, um, to John Davis's group. um, He's somebody you should consider as well. Um, The Palm Beach County Licensed Mental Health Counselors Association. Um, Probably in May or April of this year, and it was on cannabis use disorder and, and psychosis. And I reached out to uh, two psychiatrist uh, friends, colleagues that I trust, and I sent them some of, some of the material and they both wrote back very similar responses. For people, like you say, for people who don't, who clearly don't have any underlying or even any latent underlying psychiatric issues, in small doses with low THC, it's it's helped them. It's helped them with back issues, with pain. It's helped them sleep. But for especially for young people who have some underlying issues, known or unknown, it it results in hospital admissions, police, um, what was it? ambulances, all kinds of terrible things. I've probably got. Uh, and this is a r- more of a recent phenomenon. I've probably have filed five or 600 Marchmanet cases in the last 10, 12 years. It's only been in the last couple of years that probably 30, 40, 45% of my cases are young men too, interestingly enough. more Guys rather than young gals, um, anywhere from 16 to 29 who, you know, their parents say, but they're only smoking, they're only smoking marijuana. That's a really, it's a really good thing to that a lot of the, like in the industry here, the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment centers, South Florida, that a lot of these programs are now getting ACA licenses. So now that they're, they're getting licenses to provide primary mental health. And this is why. So if you have a kid like that and where the drug of choice is marijuana, if you're only licensed for substance use disorder treatment, 
then the primary di- the primary diagnosis has to be the substance use disorder. So if my drug of choice is marijuana and we're trying to get me certified through insurance for residential treatment for marijuana use disorder, guess what? That's Good a really, luck. That's a really tough sell. Yeah. But if my facility is licensed for primary mental health, and then we can go in under an admitting diagnosis of like, you know, acute cannabis psychosis or something like that. Uh, we're going to get like maybe a different look. It looks it looks like more of inpatient criteria. So I think all of these things are playing a factor now of the overlap in high potency hallucinogens and the link to mental illness. And I think to your point, you know, marijuana is medicinal. Yeah, in small doses and to people who don't have latent psychiatric disorders. And whose brains have been formed as as well, older people. And, and it's the CBD oil that I understand has some medicinal value. THC has no, the, the research that I've read, THC has no medicinal value whatsoever. I don't know if that's how accurate that is. No, but, but people really like it though. <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. You know the other thing too, though it's not just the um, the flower that has you know that has increased levels of THC, but now they they do the wax and the butter and you know which has just blown up levels of THC. The wax is a problem. The wax, yeah. The wax is a problem. You look at that, and you might just be prone to kind of classify that under you know. It's just another form of marijuana or whatever, but it's a different thing, man. Like anything that is that pure. And let's just put it this way. If you need a fucking flamethrower to smoke it, it's be a problem. (laughs) But here's the thing that, you know, people like you and I and our colleagues need to do is to, is to talk more about this in a way that doesn't scare. There's so many people now that are using medicinal marijuana. And, you know, when I posted on LinkedIn, which is more of a professional setting, I get, you know, I get decent responses. I post on my Facebook uh, law firm page, I get threats. People threaten me. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a rep- rep- representative of Big Pharma. You're, you know, I had a guy threaten to, to take me down. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, so there's fear out there. I'm not anti, you know, medicinal use of marijuana at I'm all. I'm not either. I think it's great that uh, you can get a card for it and that we're moving in that direction. I think it's probably much better socially. I I know that um, marijuana is, there are positive indications for certain like mental health conditions and stresses and stuff. But again, in low doses, this is, here's here's sort of like the issue about medicinal marijuana that I kind of, my thought about it when people because people ask me you know clients ask me professionally like hey i'm thinking about getting the the green card like what do you what do you think and i tell them like think about like the idea of medication just medication that you would take for anything right there's a specific dosing there's the times that you take it you know that's how medicines taken generally and who utilizes marijuana in that way? I mean, are you really the person that takes like the five milligram gummy in the morning to help manage your anxiety and another, you know, 10 milligram gummy at night to go to sleep? Or are you the person who's going through like an eighth of an ounce and watching like fucking Tiger King, you know, at, at 10 <laughs> o'clock at night? Because isolating, smoking, 
massive quantities of marijuana and binging the end of Western civilization on Netflix. That's not therapeutic. (laughs) And the other thing, too, is the doctors who are prescribing it, are they asking the person, do you have bipolar disorder? Because, I mean, it's I have I've had, I don't know, maybe 10 families whose sons, for the most part, in the last year have had bipolar disorder, been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and they got marijuana cards. And they went, and you know what happens with the research on, it's completely contraindicated to use weed, to use marijuana if you've got bipolar disorder. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the ending of that story is not is not a good one. No, I mean, they're, they're, go back to what you were saying before, because they're, you know, depends on when they get caught. I mean, when when we catch them in terms of getting them into treatment using the Marchman Act, I want to give give a plug, a shout out to the Marchman Act <clears throat> because they would not be. You know, intervention didn't work for these guys at all. They had to be court ordered into treatment, and so if they get caught early enough, then there's a chance that you know that they're not going to flip into schizophrenia. There's a chance that um, the, they're going to be they're going to be they're going to be be able to live their lives with their bipolar disorder but man these doctors who are not asking those questions you know, not not good at all uh, not good at all well that's that's the whole thing i mean to me that piece is a little bit of a racket i mean you think about like if you're driving by you know it's it's south florida man it doesn't just, it remind you of the pill mills that are set for shown in um uh Nope, yeah, sick. yeah, a little, a little bit. I, it's just it's South Florida. I mean, if you're driving down the road and you see like a storefront and it's like a big picture of a pot leaf on it, <laughs> I don't know. Does that look medicinal to you? Like, I'm not anti. I'm really not. I know people personally. It, it, you know, most of it is really anecdotal. It's like self-report that uh, have gotten great results utilizing again small doses of marijuana for things like fibromyalgia uh, like different kinds of chronic pain people who had like metabolic stuff where they 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 can't eat and you know and and i've heard people tell me it's hard to believe but even a couple of people are taking it for adhd and saying like it brings their attention back into focus that's a tough one for me to digest but this is what people are telling me. Who am I to refute someone else's like lived experience? So I don't know. And for chronic pain, it's helpful for chronic pain. A hundred percent. But again, in low dose THC and for people who don't have underlying, you know, psychiatric issues that I agree with you. I just think we got to do a much better job of informing and educating. And I don't know if you saw this, but, uh, um, this last week, uh, study came out showing that the high dose THC because marijuana has not been thought to be necessarily addictive, but it's the studies are really getting clearer and clearer now that, that it is because of the, the high dose THC. It's definitely addictive. I think even in the DSM five, like the uh, cannabis use disorder. Well, it's cannabis use disorder, but I, I think to me, the really like important development of 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 that conceptualization was that they added in a cannabis withdrawal disorder so if you're saying that there's a withdrawal that actually exists that there's some sort of withdrawal syndrome that you're identifying then that 
implies physical dependence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. That's a different conceptualization. But if you think about it, it, you know, people that smoke pot all the time, you know, you ever known anyone who smoked marijuana every day? What are they like when they can't? They're not happy. Yeah. What are they like when they can't? I mean, it's like. <laughs> They're not happy campers. Can't sleep, can't eat. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's withdrawal. Yep. So, you know, I'm going to talk for a minute about, you know, what I do, which, and, and, and by the way, you know, I didn't do well in science and, which is probably why I went to law school, um, in, in high school. Um, so I don't, nothing that I say should be taken as, you know, this is what's, this is what science, I read a lot of literature. I read like Dr. Judy Grizel, Dr. Anna Lemke, Dopamine Nation, um, fascinating materials. Um, and I guess probably because of the work that I do as a lawyer, I need to have some knowledge, you know, in the, in the field. Um, you know, but, um, what I hear from, um, interventionists and case managers and families outside the state of Florida is why doesn't our state, Texas, North Carolina, a lot, Illinois, a lot, why doesn't our state have something like Florida has the Marchman Act? You guys are so progressive. And I said, well, first of all, that, that, was passed back in 1993. A guy named Hal S. Marchman was a minister, and he ministered to homeless people up in Volusia County. And he found that, as we now know, that many homeless people have mental health disorders and substance use disorders. And so he asked the legislature passed this law back in 93 to let families get court orders for their loved ones with a substance use disorder to have to go to treatment. Um, and as we were talking about before the, this, this interview started, treatment works both from, a, there's two things that have to happen, external motivation and internal motivation. Ultimately, we need internal motivation. The person's got to, at some point, decide, you know, my life is, my life is going to be better without the substance. But that doesn't, you don't, nobody goes into treatment on the wings of victory. I'm here, I'm here, you know, I'm ready to be healed. <clears throat> so the external motivation can be a, a, a spouse saying to a spouse, I'm going to divorce you if you don't get treatment. An employer saying to an employee, you need to go get help or you don't have a job. Or a court issuing an order saying, you're going to um, do this because you have this substance use disorder and you're a danger to yourself and to others. And if and you don't have the, the good sense yourself because what we know from Dr. Grizel, uh, your brain's been hijacked. Um, and if you if you don't follow that court order, the the power of contempt, we we have to um, you know, our society we we need to have court orders from from courts. And they have to be followed, or there's going to be some consequence to that. And so the external motivation in that case is the court order with, if you violate it, you can be held in contempt of court, fined, or possibly incarcerated. Now, I quickly add for families, in the hundreds and hundreds of cases that I've handled, we've had three people who've been incarcerated because moms and dads are always worried, I don't want my loved one to go to jail. And I tell them that you control that. You you don't you know they're not going to go to they're not going to necessarily go to jail unless they need to in those three cases these people had left treatment and they were in shooting galleries you know and we had to have the cops go in there and get them bring them to jail for a week then bring them back to court and say the judge said you know are you willing to go to treatment now and they all said yes so jail was a form of therapy um question well it's more actually of a 
I have a statement and then, you know, a couple of questions. So one, just for anyone listening to this, the Marchman Act, in my experience, right, it's it's great. And like you said, we're far ahead of a lot of other states and the fact that we actually have involuntary treatment for substance use disorder and, and there's a system for it um, that's pretty like well established. One of the criticisms of the Marchman Act, it and that's, when I say one of the criticisms, one of my criticisms. Mm-hmm, sure. It's just in my lived experience because it's something a lot of people who are, if you're a more savvy substance use disordered individual, if, you're, if you've been to multiple treatments and someone has Marchman acted you and you've kind of been around, there are a lot of people who will take their chances on the contempt piece. Like they'll leave treatment because... It's not, they're not looking for you. They're not trying to track you down with the same fervor they would if you had a bench warrant for like a felony, you know? So if you leave, if you leave treatment, yeah, you have, you have a a warrant out for you. I mean, you have, there's a pickup order, I should say, Yeah. but they're not chasing you down unless of course, and this speaks to advocacy, if you have someone like yourself who's a Marchman Act attorney, who's kind of been representing the interests of the family in the case and been to the magistrate and, you know, presented the assessment and all that. And then that person who was Marchman Acted tries to leave treatment. Um, I'm imagining you're getting involved personally at that point. 100%. To kind of like move that along. Because otherwise... It might be a while before that person encounters any law enforcement and therefore the thing would have no teeth unless you can kind of compel law enforcement to like go look for them. Like, hey, there's this pickup order and this is where we think he is. That We have to do that sometimes. We got to go and, uh, you know, for families who can afford to hire me, they can afford to hire a private investigator. We locate the individual uh, if we're fortunate enough to locate the, the individual. Um, and then we call the police and say, hey, we got a warrant. You, um, it's in the system. And um, actually, it's not in the system. Um, and um, the person's over here at this apartment and and they pick them up and they, and they take them in. Um, what I wanted to uh, to tell you is that, you know, it, it, it's not perfect. And usually by the time that families get to me, the, the, it's 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 an extreme situation. I never get easy cases. I always get the the really, really hard cases where they've tried begging and pleading and they've got an intervention involved and they've got, you know, and, and the person's going to die if they don't, if they don't get the help. So this is kind of a last ditch effort to get a court order, get the person picked up and taken to treatment. And, you know, I kind of came up in the recovery milieu um, of understanding what they used to talk about in Al-Anon, that nobody gets sober unless they really want to. You step over the bodies and so forth. Except that, and I'm going to tie this back into OxyContin, we've been losing, you know, back when I first did the research, 75,000 people a year to, to drug overdoses. Now it's like 108,000 in the last period that was, that was counted. From drugs, 85,000 from alcohol. I read an an op-ed piece by David Brooks, who's kind of a middle-of-the-road commentator, not too liberal, not too conservative. And he wrote three years ago, and I quote this all the time, that the opioid epidemic was so severe that we needed a form of benign paternalism 
to help save this generation. And that's, and that's um, supported by addiction psychiatrists who deal and who specialize in dealing with opioid, with opioid uses. Um, I had misgivings about the Marchman Act. Again, my own kind of lived experience as a behavioral health professional. I'll tell you my biggest, and I don't feel this way anymore, but I did for a long time, was that there appeared to me, in a sense, an inherent conflict of interest that existed there. When you have a treatment center who are the ones who are tasked with writing the evaluation, presenting that in court, and then, of course, if you're presenting that and the person meets criteria and they end up getting 60-day court order to a residential program, you know, that same program that employs the individual is potentially profiting. Possibly, yeah. I mean, the it's there. Now, I will also tell you, too, that they licensed mental health counselors, and the people who are qualified professionals under the statute – you know, have their own set of ethics that they've got, that they've got to follow, and they have to follow ASAM criteria, um, you know, American Society of Addiction Medicine criteria for doing that. And they can never recommend a facility. And the statute says that the person, the impaired individual, has the right to choose their own facility where reasonable and appropriate. And there's a, there's a number of decent facilities, you know, out here. Do they do they most of the time go to the facility like you know at the Hanley Center or Karen or you know where they where they were initially brought in to be detoxed a lot of times yes but they but a lot of times they also have the right to have an independent assessment done and the right to go to I don't like this facility that happens a lot by the way facility jumping We've got a case right now in dealing with that where a young woman has been in treatment 20 times and she's at a local facility here, and she wants out now. And my argument is that it's not reasonable nor appropriate for her to leave this facility. There, there's no evidence of any wrongdoing or any trauma um, going on, and she wants to go to a different facility. And I'm gonna, my argument in a couple of weeks to the court is going to be: this has got to stop. the The facility jumping, you know, has, has got to stop. So there's there's opportunity for. I'm thinking if you've been to 20 places. Your selection criteria <laughs> maybe a little bit, maybe a little, maybe you need some help well, with some of that decision making. This is there. There's a lot. This is a. You know. I am. I'm a proponent. I, I recommend people for Marchman Acts. I hand out the literature to people's families when the less invasive intervention is not getting us what we need. And I think to your point, in this new world of the opioid epidemic which has only sort of evolved and morphed into something um, more perilous and life-threatening with the you know, widespread availability of carfentanil, which seems to be sprinkled into all of these other street drugs to where you're buying something, you have no idea what it is for real. And so everything is potentially life-threatening. So if you're dealing with somebody who's chronic, any day could be that day. Yeah. Yeah. And so would you then be more disposed to, you know, getting in touch with someone who, you know, has the capacity to like litigate? <laughs> I would, you know, if it was my family, I I'd do it. That's ultimately kind of like the moral barometer, you know, around that to me. And I want to, um, yeah, I want to say two things. One, I want to go back to 
you know, so I came up in the, in the Al-Anon milieu, you know, and then, so I had to do, uh, I, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to my, my, my mentor and law partner, Jim Robinson, who passed away about five or six years ago. And as he was getting sick, I was covering for him and I just thought, huh, okay, you force people into treatment. Does that work? And so I started doing research and I was surprised that there's a lot of studies out there on involuntary commitment to treatment. And for the most part, those um, the people who've done the who've accumulated the data and looked at it agree that involuntary commitment to treatment is at least as effective as voluntary commitment to treatment. And I was I was really surprised. Um, I was really surprised by that. And then I also want to talk about. I saw something about that, mm-hmm. and I, it's been a minute since I looked at it. I couldn't tell you who authored the study, but it was a meta analysis. So it's like it's a, a meta analysis. Yeah, so it was like a review of a bunch of different studies, mm-hmm. and it seemed like there really was not a discernible difference in outcomes between voluntary admissions to treatment and involuntary. It seemed like they were about the same, which means that you know. Okay, if 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 the person's not going to go voluntarily, then you know, grab his ass and throw him in treatment. Um, Is that what it means? No, <laughs> you're going to edit that part. <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to say. The other the other piece. To, to Maybe that is what it means. I don't know. <laughs> well, I I mean, so uh, a colleague did us did a study over on the west coast of um, back in 2016, um, and studied. Like 200 cases, and this is not enough really to constant. To, it's it's more than anecdotal. 200 voluntary and 200 who had been court ordered into treatment, and the results were very similar. So if you the voluntary, yes, obviously we want people to go voluntarily into treatment, you know. But the cases that wind up in my office are people who have refused to go, and so when you're left with the the data, the research that shows, well, they at least have as good a chance. As the people who go voluntarily, oh, okay, okay. That rebuts kind of that old wives, maybe not politically correct to say old wives, that old thinking that, oh, people only get sober if they really want to get sober. And that's not true. That's dated. I mean, I think there are still people who would say that. I think there are addiction professionals who would say I that. Hear, I hear it a lot. And even the idea of how you deal with someone who is, you know, quote, resistant. I mean, there are full clinical paradigms of motivational interviewing and craft and things like this to help move them toward intrinsic motivation. So the idea of this is a hopeless case because this person doesn't want it or doesn't want it bad enough and that's why they're not going to stay sober and you shouldn't bother with them, wait till they reach rock bottom. Because nowadays, rock bottom comes up pretty quickly and it could be you know permanent. With fentanyl and carfentanil, as you as you suggested, yeah, 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 yeah. We, don't, we don't want to wait because the runway of progression is not the same as it was in like the eighties and nineties when we we're talking about alcoholism and cocaine and other street drugs, where there was a progression and people got worse over time. This is this is like immediate, and it's young people, so their substance use disorder career and the progression of their illness that's a short ramp. It's a more aggressive disease, we could say. So I want to I want to also add this that <clears throat> you know we look to what are the programs that are successful? The commercial airline pilots program. You're familiar with that. They yeah, have like yeah, yeah, yeah. Above eighty five percent success rate at five years, and impaired physicians and nurses not quite as high, but pretty significant. And 
you know, each state is somewhat different, but uh, my friend Ben Seymour, uh, who kind of oversees the some of the Northwest, says it's at least like 65%, 70%. Those are good numbers. Uh, those are good numbers. So why do they work? Um, so there's leverage. If you're a licensed physician or a nurse and you want to continue to practice, you're going you're gonna to do what these people want you to do, number one. And number two, it's long-term structured treatment. So I was sitting in, um, I was sitting in a meeting, and I was, you know, I was addressing them, the folks about this, and, and a buddy of mine who's a retired neurologist looked over at me and said, you know, I hated, I hated having to go and drop urine every week. And I said, how long are you sober? He said, eighteen years. I said, oh, well, did it work? <laughs> you know. Yeah, you, you don't still have to do that, do you? <laughs> yeah, eight, right? 18 years. No, no, right. But I mean, so what we try to do with the Marchman Act, the Marchman Act allows us to kind of approximate some of those features. Number one is the leverage, which I already talked about, a court order. you know. And number two, you can continue to renew the treatment order indefinitely as long as the person continues to meet Marchman Act criteria. I've had people in under a Marchman Act, obviously not under residential the whole time, for a year, a year and a half. I mean, these other states are just like scratching their head. How do we get this kind of law? And and that's what, you know, so that's what is needed. Both the leverage of this is something you got to do. And number two, long term. So, and then I want to talk to, I don't, I didn't hear you raise this as a, as an objection, but sometimes clinicians will say, well, I'm not happy about this because it infringes on civil liberties and it takes away the person's agency. And Governor Newsom of California, now he's introducing legislation similar to the Marchman Act out in California because their homeless pop, their homeless situation, you know, it's terrible. And he, he said, and I want to address those of you who are concerned about loss of agency. I want to know what kind of agency these individuals have when we see them going to the bathroom in the street, you know, when we see them doing terrible things to themselves and to others, there is no, they don't have agency. They don't have agency. And so the state has the right under something called this Latin, parents patria. The state has a right to step in and take care of the most vulnerable for themselves and to make sure they don't hurt us, you know, because those people get behind the wheel and they, and they kill us when they're, when they're driving their vehicles. So, Okay, I'm off my soapbox for a minute. Everything functions best with checks and balances, right? And as far as that whole agency aspect goes, in 94, my first job in behavioral health care was I was a, a case manager for Henderson Mental Health Centers, Community Mental Health, Fort Lauderdale. Okay. So it was the indigent psychiatric population in uh, Fort Lauderdale, most of them were on Medicaid, and you know most of them were like disabled and indigent. My job was to kind of monitor them in the community and help these folks access like resources and link them with things, and and also keep them current on their medication, you know, visits and things like this. So if you know someone just wasn't coming in for a month or missing appointments probably likely off their meds and a crisis or a hospitalization usually is not far, far off. So one of the things that they were doing at that time was they had the actual Baker Act hearings at 
the outpatient facility. And at every one of those Baker Act hearings was a member of the Human Rights Advocacy Committee. And I don't know if they're still doing that, but I just remember from that time that there was someone there who was an advocate to sort of oversee and make sure that these laws were not being abused or that people's rights weren't being trampled on, especially people who maybe were not like in a position to advocate for themselves. And I think that kind of oversight is good. And I think the fact that some if things like that exist, it almost gives you that element of someone does watch this. It's not we're abusing this law in order to institutionalize people who don't belong there and, you know, take their rights away. Someone is overseeing that and makes it fair. And I guess, you know, that's the role of the magistrate and, you know, the people who who oversee these things in, in court. Well, the public in a Baker Act setting, the public defender represents the individual. Um, in a Marchman Act setting, if the person the person can bring their own lawyer, uh, if they can't afford one, the court's going to appoint a lawyer. And those those guys give me the hardest because they're in court all the time, and they're very um, they really are they really look out for the rights of the of the impaired individual. They do a nice job of that too. Number one, and also um, the standard of proof. <clears throat> this is a legal thing. Um, it's, it's called clear and convincing. We've got to establish by clear and convincing evidence, which is more than, you know, mere preponderance. Mere preponderance is a standard, like in a divorce setting or a contract or a PI case. You just got to show a little bit more evidence in favor of your proposition than not. In a, to get somebody committed under either Baker or Marchman, you've got to show clear and convincing, which, just by the by its words it's got to be clear and it's got to be convincing evidence much more than mere preponderance so there's a lot of due process i got a call from an illinois lawyer legislator who said how come you guys have never been sued by the aclu for for this law and i said because number one there's a ton of due process safeguards built into the statute the right to counsel the right to be the right to be heard notice on everything and then these exacting standards of proof um, you know that are required that's an excellent point. I actually appreciate you saying that because these, the things that I voiced are like the criticisms, you know, that people feel like their rights are being trampled on. And, you know, there's a lot to say about that, but clearly there's a lot of due process that's built into this system. When, when parents and others say, so they get a lawyer, I say, yes, they get a lawyer. They, and that's why this statute works is we've got to we've got to do our work. We've got to prove, you know, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, which is criminal setting, but we got to prove by clear and convincing. And I've got to I've got to do that against a colleague who really knows the law, um, you know. Be, and and that has to be the case because we're taking away their rights. It must be that way. And I, you know, I, I believe that we've got to act in the best interest of these people you know, who have um, these these terrible brain issues, which is what addiction is in my my estimation, but we still have to act in their best interest. We got to make damn sure that we that we can prove our case. Um, and so I, you know, my hat's off to, to the due process safeguards built into the statute. No, I think, uh, I think you make an excellent point. And uh, I appreciate you saying that. So if someone wanted to get in touch with you if they felt like they needed, you know, representation, someone to facilitate um, this process? How how would one go about working with someone like you, 
yourself? So first of all, go to my website. Um, all I do is Marchman Act law anymore. I used to do complex uh, commercial cases and family law cases. And then I saw how effective this law was. And maybe 10 years ago, I just, I waved goodbye to all those other areas and just started focusing on, on this. And um, so my website is designed with that in mind and it's full of, you know, videos of me, articles that I've written. I write extensively on it. Um, notions that families have, have come back and say about how, you know, the Marchman Act saved their kid's life and how they processed it. So that's at joeconsidinelaw.com, um, joeconsidinelaw.com. The other thing is then is to um, call my office, 561-655-8081. And um, that's, those are ways to get, to, to get in touch with me. And guys, um, that joeconsidine.com. Joeconsidinelaw. Joe Considant, sorry, joeconsidantlaw.com. The hyperlink for that will be in the show notes um, if you if you need to go back and, and want to check out the uh, the website and find out more about that. Let me add a couple of th- couple of last sure. thoughts. Number one, it's a confidential process. So you, anyone who's been marchman acted, you know, in any county in the state of Florida, um, if if somebody you know, an employer were to Google, go into the clerk's website, the clerk of court in that county's website and look for John Smith. Um, you would, you might see traffic tickets. You might see a divorce case. You would never see a mental health case in, on that website. And the courts are very strict about keeping, keeping this confidential because we want people to go to treatment and we don't want that to hurt them down the road. You know, and now parents will ask me, you know, what if my kid can't get into a Ivy League school? Um, and I reassure them that this is very confidential. Um, number one. Number two, you don't have to be a resident of the state of Florida, believe it or not. You just have to be present in the state of Florida. Um, That's right. Like I participated in the process with someone from uh, another state. That They were here in treatment and they were an AMA risk and somebody initiated the yeah. process and it worked. Yeah. And so that's why interventionists from around the country will will bring their hard cases to Florida. Um, to uh, the, So as long as the person, when the person literally steps off the, onto the tarmac at the airport, we can file a, a Marchman Act case on that person. Nor does the family have to be a resident. So there's no requirement of residency. That is why we are the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment here in South Florida. Thanks, man. Thank you for um, asking me to, to come down here. And, yeah, um, sure, sure, sure. I love your show. Well, thank you. Thank you. But uh, anyway, Joe, thank you so much for coming out and uh, and hanging out with me. Uh, this I feel like this was a good one. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it, man, a lot. This is uh, it was very comfortable. And um, good luck in, in all your stuff, man. I really, and I'm going to talk a lot about, about what you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You want to appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Considine on the Good Counsel Podcast. <laughs>